ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد سنتريز دكتا ان شاء الله تعالى we're going to speak a little bit about some of the tafsir of some of the ayat of the Qur'an in brief, in summary, but just to understand some of the main meanings and to grasp or get an understanding of some of the main meanings. So we'll look at, to start with, Surah Al-Humaza. In this surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَيْلٌ لِكُلِّ هُمَزَةِ اللُّمَزَةِ الَّذِي جَمَعَ مَالًا وَعَدَّدَةِ يحسب أن ماله أخلده كلا لينبغن في الحطمة وما أدراك ما الحطمة نار الله الموقدة التي تطلع على الأفئدة إنها عليهم مؤصدة في عمد ممددة This is سورة الهمزة in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states that woe be to every slanderer and defamer. Woe be to those who slander and defame, who amass their wealth and consider it as a provision against any mishap occurring to them. And they think that this wealth of theirs that they have gathered, it will keep them alive forever, it will make them immortal. Rather Allah says, Kalla, nay, he shall most certainly be hurled into the crushing fire. He will be thrown into that crushing fire. And what will make him realize, or what will cause you to realize what this crushing fire is? It is the fire which has been kindled, the fire of Allah which has been kindled, which rises above and pierces through the hearts of the people, Surely it shall be closed over upon them. They will be engulfed by it and will not be able to exit from it. في عمد ممددة And it is in extended columns all around them. This is generally the meanings of the translation of Surah Al-Humaza. So what is the meaning of this? The meaning of it is Firstly, when Allah says, وَيْلٌ لِكُلِّ هُمَزَةٍ لُمَزَةٍ Wail, often it's translated as woe. Woe be to these individuals. Woe be to the one who does this. Woe be to the one who does that. Some of the scholars have said, however, that wail, وَيْلٌ لِكُلِّ هُمَزَةٍ لُمَزَةٍ The section that we translate as woe be to them. They say, some of the scholars, that it is actually, the meaning of it isn't just woe be to them. It is actually a valley in hellfire. It is a valley in hellfire, some of the scholars have mentioned. Now this is what is being referred to, that these individuals who carry out these types of acts, they will be thrown into this valley within hellfire. That is referring to all of those individuals who backbite and slander and speak evil with their tongues. And this is a disease within society. As Sheikh Muhammad bin Saleh al-Uthaymeen rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, 
He said that this is one of the diseases within society that people, they abuse their tongues. And they use their tongues to speak ill of the people and to backbite and to slander. And we know that these are from the major sins. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran, أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتَا فَكَرِهْتُمُ Would one of you like to eat the meat of his dead brother? To eat the meat of the corpse of his dead brother? And you surely dislike that. This is what is mentioned concerning the one who backbites. In one narration, the Prophet ﷺ was asked, What if I say something about the person and it's true? I'm not lying what I'm saying about him. So the Prophet ﷺ said, If what you say about him is true, إِنْ كَانَ فِيهِ مَا قُلْتَ فَقَدْ بَهَتَّهُ فَقَدْ اغْتَبْتَهُ But if it is true what you have said about him, then you have indeed backbitten him. أو كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم And if it is false what you have said about him, if it is false, it's not even true what you're saying about him behind his back, then it's considered a slander. So either way, whether it's true what you're saying about him, or it's false what you're saying about him, as long as you're saying it behind his back, and it is something which he dislikes that should be said about him. He dislikes that this speech should be made concerning him. Yet you make this speech concerning him. Then that is considered as backbiting. And if it is false what you are saying, it's even worse in one regard. And it is considered as slander and lying. Of course, we spoke about this issue already in brief. And we mentioned that there are certain times when backbiting is permissible. And one of those times was the refutations. To refute an individual who is opposing the methodology of the salaf. Then those kinds of instances, it is permissible to speak about the people and to refute them and to warn others from them. And that we mentioned already in the previous lessons. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about these individuals who are backbiting and slandering without justice, without due cause. So then, there are many other narrations regarding this. And Namima, for example, the one who spreads those stories between the people, spreads the tales between the people. There is a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ walked past two graves. He walked past the two graves. And he said these two are being punished for something they consider not to be big, and in reality it is big. As for one of them, he used to spread tales and stories between the people. And as for the other individual, he never used to look after himself when urinating. The splashes used to go everywhere. When he used to urinate, he never used to clean himself properly after urinating. And for that reason, he is going to be punished in his grave for that sin. So the point being that one of them was the individual who was spreading the tales and the lies. Similarly, there is a narration... Where the Prophet said, وَإِنَّ الْعَبْدَ لَيَتَكَلَّمُ بِكَلِمَةٍ مِنْ سَخَطِ اللَّهِ لَا يُلْقِ لَهَا بَالًا يَهْوِي بِهَا إِلَى جَهَنَّمٍ أو كما قال النبي صلى الله عليه That an individual, he might say something, and it might be something very small. He doesn't give much attention to it. 
He doesn't think about it. He just says something. And it's something which is a sin. It is something which is not correct for him to say. But he says it and he doesn't think about it. He doesn't pay any attention to it. He just says it and it flows off his tongue and he forgets about it. However, as we know, every single word, every single action that a person does, it is recorded by the angels. That indeed we have upon you the righteous, noble guardians writing down everything you do. So the hadith says that maybe a person will say something small and he doesn't even care about it, he just says it, he doesn't even remember it. But it is something wrong and haram and incorrect and it will be recorded. And on the Day of Judgment, because of that one speech that he said, that one word that he said, that one bit of uh, speech that he made, even though he didn't think about it, it was something wrong and impermissible. Because of that, he might end up being thrown into the hellfire. A piece of, uh, a few words that he said, maybe didn't even concentrate on them, didn't even think about them, but they were evil. And as a consequence on the Day of Judgment, because of those few words, of backbiting or slander or lying or whatever it might be, he is thrown into the hellfire. So it should be known that the eyes, the hands, the tongue, all of these are the blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the levels of showing your gratitude to Allah, as the scholars say, there are three levels of showing your gratitude to Allah for these blessings that you have. One of them is to acknowledge those blessings in your heart. To accept and to understand and to acknowledge that these blessings are from Allah. The other is to speak about these blessings. To mention to the people the great blessings Allah has placed upon you. That is also demonstrating your gratitude to Allah. And the third is to then use those blessings in the obedience of Allah. To use the blessings in the obedience of Allah. So to acknowledge them in your heart to speak about them to the people and inform the people of the great blessings of Allah upon you and to then use those blessings in the obedience of Allah. So this tongue is one of those blessings from the blessings of Allah. And it is not befitting that a person uses it to abuse or to slander or to backbite. So that's what's mentioned here at the beginning. That woe be to those individuals who backbite and slander and they spread the stories etc. Then after that, another characteristic is mentioned, which is that some individuals, they gather their wealth. They gather money. Thinking that this money, this wealth that they are gathering and counting and protecting, they think that this wealth will give them some protection. They think this money will be able to make them immortal. They think they will be able to do whatever they want, live as long as they want, as long as they have money. So they collect and they gather their money and they count their money. And in reality this money is not something, this wealth is not something that will give them immortality as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned. Then after that, Allah says, even though these people think their wealth will make them immortal, they will not die. The reality is, The reality is they will be thrown into al-hutama. They will be thrown into this fire. They will be thrown into this fire which pierces and crushes them. The fire which will pierce them and crush them. They will be thrown into this fire. And how will a person come to recognize what this fire is? This is the great punishment that has been prepared. That hell fire 
which there is mentioned in one narration of the companions, they were sitting and they heard a noise. They heard a crushing noise. And so then the Prophet ﷺ told them, that is a rock that was thrown into the hellfire 70 years ago, only now it has reached the bottom of the hellfire, that was the noise that you heard. Similarly, it is mentioned that the hellfire is 70 times hotter than any fire upon this earth. If a person was to consider taking a matchstick, something so small, something so insignificant, you could lick your fingers and put them onto the matchstick and turn it out without any pain. That's how minute it is, that's how weak this flame is. Blow it slightly and it goes out. However, despite the weakness of this flame, you could blow it with a slight blowing and it would blow out. You could touch it with your fingers, it will blow out. Flick the matchstick and it blows out. It is a weak flame. Despite that, when it's on and the matchstick is burning, a person would not be able to put that next to his face for more than a second before feeling the pain and feeling the burning on his face. Five seconds and you would be burnt already. Ten seconds, fifteen seconds. Keep a small, tiny matchstick to your face and you would see the damage and the burn. So that is a flame that is absolutely weak and that is the damage it can cause. So what therefore of a fire in the hellfire that is 70 times hotter than the hottest fire on this earth? So this is what's mentioned about these individuals. They will be thrown into this fire. This is a fire that will overcome their hearts all around them. And it will pierce through them. And they will not be able to escape from that. They will be blocked in. They will be blocked into this. And the doors will be locked and closed. And they will not be able to exit from the fire. Just like the, the disbelievers, when they are in the fire, they will say, to Malik, ask your Lord to kill us. We would rather die than be in the hellfire. And the reality is they will be told, إِنَّكُمْ مَاكِثُونَ You are not going anywhere, you are not dying, you will remain in there forever. Just like Allah mentioned in the Quran, كُلَّمَا نَضِجَتْ جُلُودُهُمْ بَدَّلْنَاهُمْ جُلُودًا غَيْرَهَا Every time their skins they burn from the fire, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replaces them with new skins and they burn again. So they continue to burn and their skins are replenished and replaced and so they burn again and they feel the pain again and they continue upon that way. And this fire, it will be in columns all around them and they will be in the middle of this fire which is piercing and controlling and engulfing them from all sides. That is what is mentioned in this surah. And it is a, an admonition that a person takes lesson from this. This is the speech of Allah in the Qur'an. This is the revelation that was given to the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. This is the revelation that was given, sent by Allah, the speech of Allah. Jibreel salam heard it and came and gave that to the Prophet wasallam. These are those exact words. So a person should concentrate upon the speech of his Lord and to recognize the great meanings and the great warnings within it. Consider the warnings in this surah, the warnings against using the tongue incorrectly, the warning against those who become obsessed with wealth and money, considering it will give them immortality, and the warning concerning that fire and how it crushes the people. So a person takes warning from these types of ayat from the Qur'an. After that, surah Al-Fil. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this surah, أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ 
ألم يجعل كيدهم في تضليل وأرسل عليهم طيرا أبابيل ترميهم بحجارة من سجيل فجعلهم كعصف مأكول Allah said have you not seen how Allah dealt with the people of the elephant how Allah dealt with the people of the elephant have you not seen how Allah destroyed their plan how Allah ruined their plan وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ And Allah sent upon them birds in groups who threw the stones upon them, stones of hard clay. And so He made those people like harvests that had been eaten up. They looked like they were vegetation that had been eaten up and crushed. This is how Allah destroyed those people. So who is this referring to? This is referring to what is known as Al-Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. What is the year of the elephant? The year of the elephant, many of the scholars say that is the year when the Prophet ﷺ was born. These events that we're going to speak about now, then many of the scholars, they say these events occurred in the year the Prophet ﷺ was born. So what were these events? At that time, Al-Najashi, who was the ruler of uh, Abyssinia, Al-Habasha, Al-Najashi is the name of any individual who rules that area. Just like Pharaoh is a name that is given to any individual who rules over Egypt. Just like Caesar is given to a, an individual who rules over Rome or that area. So... These types of names are names of the rulers that rule over those particular areas. Al-Najashi was in control at that time. And Yemen was under his control also. Yemen was under his control also at that time. And he himself was in Habasha. And he had appointed an individual by the name of Al-Abraha, Al-Ashram, to be the person in charge of Yemen. He had appointed him to be in charge of Yemen. Abraha al-Ashram decided, now that he was in charge of Yemen, under the leadership of al-Najashi overall, he decided that he was going to build a magnificent church. These were Christians. These were Christians, al-Najashi, etc. He decided he was going to build a magnificent church in Yemen. A huge, magnificent church. Because at that time, in Mecca, in those areas, in the land of Hijaz, that area of Mecca, etc. The Arabs, they had the Kaaba, of course. The Kaaba was there. And they used to respect and honor the Kaaba. Even though this was before the sending of the Prophet ﷺ. Even before Islam, they used to respect and honor the Kaaba. They even used to go make Hajj, the Mushrikeen, before the Prophet ﷺ. Before the sending of the Prophet ﷺ, they used to go and make Hajj. But they used to do shirk. When they used to go and do their hajj, they used to do shirk in their hajj. They used to go do their hajj naked at times. They used to say words of shirk. Like, labbaik, Allahumma labbaik, labbaik, la sharika laka labbaik. They would add the words of shirk. Illa sharikun huwa lak, tamlikuhu wa ma malakak. They would say that you have no partners, except for a partner that you do maybe have, but you control him, he doesn't control you. This is what they used to say in their hajj. They used to affirm the partners to Allah. So they used to do shirk, but... 
They still used to honor and respect the Kaaba though. Those Arabs, the Quraysh, before the Prophet ﷺ, they used to respect and honor the Kaaba. And they all used to go to the Kaaba. So all of the business and the trade, it was centered around that area, Mecca and the Kaaba. Because that's where they all used to go. That was the honorable place for them. So Al-Abraha, upon his Christianity, decided that he was going to build a magnificent church in Yemen to try to get the people to abandon the Kaaba and start coming to the church instead. When they would hear that this is a magnificent church and an amazing church that he's built there, maybe the people will forget about the Kaaba and start coming to Yemen to the church instead. That was his plan. To try to get the people to come to Yemen so that the business and the trade will all come to Yemen then. So he decided to build this huge magnificent church and he did it. He built it. When the Arabs they found out and the Quraysh they found out about his plan, that he was building this huge church, this magnificent church to try to drag the people away from the Kaaba towards Yemen and his church instead to get the business, they became angry. And one of them, out of his anger, went to this church and secretly defecated in the church and urinated in the church and ran away. When Al-Abraha found out, or Abraha found out, when he found out, clearly this was something that angered him, that one of these Arabs has come and urinated in my church or defecated in my church, became angry. So what did he do? He decided he would take revenge. And what was the revenge? To go and destroy the Kaaba. He decided that my revenge is going to be to go and destroy the Kaaba. So he gathered an army. He gathered an army together and from this army were elephants. There were certain elephants that they had prepared with this army, to go with the army. And the scholars, they mentioned that there were 12 or 13 elephants. And the biggest of those elephants, the biggest and the strongest of these 13 elephants, was an elephant by the name of... Anybody know? Mahmoud. So this great elephant was uh, given the name Mahmoud. And their plan was that they were going to take these elephants and they would strap ropes onto them. On the other ends of the ropes, they would strap them to the Kaaba, and the elephants would move and walk and run, and they would bring the walls of the Kaaba down. That was their plan. So they went with this army. They started walking towards Mecca. As they were going towards Mecca, and they were heading towards Mecca, all the Arab tribes along the route who had heard about their plan, they obviously tried to stop them. But they were all in small groups, small clans, small tribes, and Abraha with his army would crush them all. He would finish them all off and continue upon his journey. And they, they failed to stop him until he came to the boundaries of Mecca. And this is summarized. There are other details, but summarized. He arrived at the gates of Mecca, or he arrived at the boundaries of Mecca, and he said to them, I want to speak to the leader. And at that time, they didn't have a king, Quraysh. They didn't have a leader as such, but they had elders who were in charge and in authority. And the one who was in charge and authority at that time was Abdul Muttalib the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. So he went and he sat with Abraha. Abraha said to him, that we will not harm you or your people. We will not harm you or your people. We don't want any harm. We don't want to take you hostage or to attack you, nothing. All we want is to go to the Kaaba and to destroy it and we'll go. That's it. We won't touch you. We just want to destroy the Kaaba and we'll go. So leave us alone, don't cause us any problems, we won't harm any of you people, just let us destroy the Kaaba and we'll go. Abdul Muttalib said to him in response, because Abraha when he came, he oppressed the people slightly when he arrived, and he took some camels, and he had took 200 from the camels of Abdul Muttalib too. 
So Abd al-Muttalib said to him in response to this, he said, what about my camels, my 200 camels that you took? I want them back. Abraha said to him, he was shocked, he was amazed. He said, I have sat here and I'm just telling you now, I'm going to destroy the Kaaba, this house that you people respect and honor. I'm telling you, I'm going to destroy it and I've bought my army. And all you're worried about is your 200 camels. What about your Kaaba? What about this house of Allah that you respect? Don't you care about that? Why are you so worried about your 200 camels? So Abdul Muttalib said, he said, I am the owner of those 200 camels. So it's my responsibility to look after them. I have to look after them. That's why I'm asking you about them. Whereas the Kaaba, it has its owner. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the owner of the Kaaba and Allah will look after the Kaaba. I'm looking after my camels. Allah will look after the Kaaba. So Abraha gave him his camels back and he went or he decided to now go and destroy the Kaaba. It's mentioned then that when they try to go and they try to pick up Mahmud, this huge elephant, try to get him up to move towards the Kaaba to destroy it, the, the uh, elephant Mahmud refused and he wouldn't get up. He wouldn't get up and walk towards the Kaaba. Every time they would change his face to a different direction, he would start walking. But as soon as they changed him back towards the Kaaba, he would stop and sit down. So they mention this in the books of Tafsir and Sirah, that this elephant, that this elephant, Mahmud, would not destroy the Kaaba. It would not destroy the Kaaba. So, at that point, when they were trying to destroy the Kaaba, and they brought this elephant, and they were trying to destroy the Kaaba with this elephant, but the elephant wouldn't do it, at that point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the birds, and they were sent with stones, two stones in each of their claws and one in their beaks. This is what the Qur'an tells us. This is the surah of the Qur'an. They were sent with those birds. And they came in big groups, these birds. And they started to throw these stones down on them. And they were small stones, size of lentils or chickpeas. And they started to throw these stones on the army. And all of that army, when the stones, they came and hit them, they were destroyed. They would be crushed by these stones and the stones would pierce through their bodies. Go in from here, come out from there. Go in from here, come out from the back. And all of the army was destroyed in this way. They even say their leader, Abraha, he was punctured by so many stones, so many holes everywhere, that his heart fell out of his chest. This is what they mention about him. So that army was then destroyed by these birds that were sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the story of the elephant. That is the story of the elephant that Allah mentions in the Qur'an. أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَىٰ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Have you not seen how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dealt with the army of the elephant? Those people who came with those elephants to try to destroy the Kaaba, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defeated them and crushed them. Even though the people of Mecca, Abdul Muttalib and Quraysh, they were unable to stop them. They were unable to stop them themselves. In fact, it is mentioned in the books of Sirah and Tafsir that Abdul Muttalib, he advised the people to run away. He advised everyone to run away to the mountaintops. To run away to the mountaintops and to hide because he said this army, they will oppress you and they will attack you. So they ran away. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent these birds, أَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ He sent upon them these birds in groups. تَرْمِيهِمْ بِحِجَارَةٍ مِّنْ سِجِّيلٍ And they were pelting them and throwing upon them these stones made out of hard clay. 
hard, solid stones that were going onto this army and crushing them and beating them with them. فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصْفٍ مَأْكُولٍ فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصْفٍ مَأْكُولٍ And then Allah made them look like a field which has been eaten up. If you have a field full of wheat and crops and the cows and the sheep and everything comes and eats it up, then afterwards it just looks messed up everywhere, squashed and finished. That's how they looked like. Like a field that had been eaten up. This was the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon them and how they were destroyed. That is known as the year of the elephant. The year Abraha came with his army to try to destroy the Kaaba, but they were instead destroyed. Many of the scholars say it was in that year that the Prophet ﷺ was born. Many of the scholars, they say that. Then after that, we'll mention also Surah Quraysh. لِإِلَى فِي قُرَيْشِ إِلَى فِيهِمْ رِحْلَةَ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ أَلَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعِ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفِ This surah is in reality directly linked to the previous one. Because in this surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the Quraysh and how they were able to make their trips and their journeys for trade and business in winter and in summer in peace and security and in comfort. They were able to go and make these journeys. And this was from the blessing of Allah upon them. Just like it was from the blessing of Allah that the Kaaba was saved and protected and that army was destroyed. Even though they were not able to do that themselves. Then Allah mentions in this surah that similarly from His blessings upon them was that they were able to go and make these expeditions. Fishita'i was safe in the winter and in the summer. They used to go to the north and to the south and make these business trips. And Allah allowed them to do that. And that was a blessing from Him upon them. That they were able to make these expeditions and these trips in peace and security and safety. So then Allah says, if this peace and security and all these blessings have been given to them and to the people, then it is upon them to thank Allah for these blessings. That's why Allah says, Then they need to worship the Lord of this house. Allah has given them all these blessings, all that story of the elephant that happened, all of these trade business trips that they are making. These are from the blessings of Allah upon them. And the blessings of Allah are great. If you try to count the blessings of Allah, you would never be able to do so. There are so many. So Allah says, because of all these blessings, they should worship Allah. Or oh, this is one of the reasons why they should worship Allah. They need to worship the Lord of this house, the Kaaba. The one who has fed them from their hunger. And the one who has given them safety and security in the time of their fear. So this is the blessing of Allah upon them and the benefits to be taken from that are that an individual, he is to be grateful to Allah for the blessings that he has been given because when an individual does not demonstrate his gratitude to Allah for these blessings, then that is creating a scenario or a situation where those blessings could be taken away. A person who doesn't demonstrate his gratitude to Allah for the blessings, then they could be taken away from that individual or it is presenting a situation where they may be taken away as a consequence. Similarly, 
Clearly, it mentions the obligation of worshipping Allah alone upon Tawheed. فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ That they need to worship the Lord of this house. And also that this food and this drink and this peace and this security, these are affairs that life revolves around. Life revolves around food and drink. A person must eat. Life revolves around security and safety. person requires security and peace and safety to be able to live properly. So these are things that Allah provided them. And these are from the blessings that Allah placed upon them. So it is mentioned here that the, uh, what is obligatory upon them and what was required of them, of Quraysh and those individuals, was to then thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that and to be upon the uh, obedience of Allah on Tawheed. So these are some of the uh, uh, surahs of the Qur'an in brief, in summary uh, from Juz'amma. And inshallah, if there is time at some point, we'll maybe do some more at some later time. But at least now a person has a general understanding of what these surahs are speaking about. The benefits from that one regarding backbiting and usage of the tongue and the extreme crushing fire. Then, Alam tara fil. Have you not seen how Allah dealt with those people who tried to come and destroy the Kaaba? And then, Li'ila fi Quraysh, the blessings of Allah upon the people upon Quraysh, so that the individuals they then worship Allah upon Tawheed. So, there are some of the benefits in brief and in summary from these surahs of the Quran. And we'll conclude upon that point. Uh, and so, next time. Uh, Next time the topic is Din al Nasiha. Next time the topic is going to be the Hadith uh, of the Prophet Sallallahu Nasiha. That the religion is advice. What does it mean that religion is based upon advice or advising each other correctly and truthfully? So inshallah next time we look at this Hadith from the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu because it's important to look at those narrations from the Qur'an and the Sunnah to understand them and to act upon them and to implement them in order that we are able to then uh, uh, achieve by that the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we'll conclude upon that point for now. If there's any questions, we'll take them. Otherwise, we'll stop there.